Welcome to Episode 6 of History of the Marine Corps, Events Leading to the Revolutionary War, Part 2. Last week, we briefly discussed the French and Indian War and Britain's acquired debt from fighting the French. This debt led to Great Britain enforcing taxes on the colonies as an attempt to pay down the debt. We explored the Sugar Act, Currency Act, Stamp Act, Quartering Act, and the Townshend Acts. We also discussed how colonists reacted to the additional taxes, and their thoughts of Parliament enforcing these taxes without a representative from the colonies having a say, or taxation without representation. This week, we'll finish discussing the remaining events that led to the American Revolution against Great Britain. This episode starts with the Boston Massacre and how it escalated tension between the British military and colonists. We'll move into the Tea Act, the Boston Tea Party, and finally the Intolerable Acts. These events will motivate the colonists to develop the First Continental Congress, which will unite the colonies and move one step closer to independence. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. The first troops arrived on October 1, 1768, and were led by Lieutenant Colonel Dalrymple. To comply with the Quartering Act, Bostonians suggested that British troops stay at Castle William, which housed 1,000 soldiers and was located on the outskirts of Boston. The soldiers pointed out that Castle William was too far from Boston. Bostonians knew this and were using Castle William as a tactic to keep the troops away. Dalrymple saw through this and he ordered one of his regiments to set up tents in Boston Common and the 2nd Regiment to occupy Faneuil Hall, an essential building used for meetings, protests, and debates still used today. As an attempt to de-escalate tension, the Governor of Massachusetts approved the Army's takeover of a poorhouse. This was met with resistance, and would greatly tarnish the reputation of Britain's army. For troops to live there, they would need to evict widows and orphans into the cold. This is precisely what they tried to do for a few days, but ultimately failed. After an uproar from colonists, the military eventually moved into empty warehouses. On June 4, 1766, residents of New York constructed the first Liberty Pole. The purpose of this pole was to honor the King's birthday and celebrate the retraction of the Stamp Act, but soon it turned into a popular location to hold protests and assemblies. British soldiers saw this as an opportunity to get back at the colonists. Soldiers were angry at New York's resistance to comply with the Quartering Act, so they cut down the pole. The citizens of New York responded by standing up another pole, but British soldiers cut it down a couple of days later. A third Liberty Pole was built, and the governor instructed soldiers not to cut it down. The third Liberty Pole lasted about six months before it was chopped down. The Sons of Liberty were a secret organization formed to battle the Stamp Act. They raised a fourth Liberty Pole the day after the third pole was chopped down. However, the Sons of Liberty reinforced their pole with iron bands around the bottom for an extra level of protection. That didn't stop soldiers from trying to destroy the pole. Attempts were made to cut down the pole, but due to the protection of the Sons of Liberty and the Iron Bands, the fourth pole lasted for about three years. A group of soldiers tried to destroy the pole by drilling a hole in the wood, filling it with gunpowder, and attempting to ignite it. Someone noticed the soldiers doing this and informed the Sons of Liberty who were at their local hangout in a nearby tavern. The gunpowder would never ignite, and the Sons of Liberty confronted the soldiers about trying to destroy the Liberty Pole. Angered by the confrontation and about the powder not igniting, the British soldiers walked into the tavern, held everyone at bayonet point while they destroyed the bar and beat up a waiter. A few days after this attack, 
British soldiers passed out flyers stating that the attempt to destroy the Liberty Pole was not by any of the soldiers. This flyer did very little to sway colonists' beliefs because multiple witnesses saw the soldiers trying to destroy the Liberty Pole, were present at the tavern while soldiers destroyed property, and the flyer was also making fun of the Sons of Liberty. Again, this angered local citizens, and a mob of Bostonians grabbed the soldiers and took them to the mayor's house to submit a complaint. The few soldiers who managed to get away went for help and came back with 20 armed men. They had swords, their rifles with bayonets, and threatened to storm the mayor's house and remove their colleagues by force. A local militia captain convinced the soldiers to go back to their barracks and demanded this issue be handled peacefully. The soldiers started to head back but were followed by a mob. On their way home, another group of soldiers joined the original group, and a third group of soldiers was able to join and set up position behind the mob. When they reached Golden Hill, tensions escalated further, and a British officer stated, Soldiers, draw your bayonets and cut your way through them. Both sides were injured during the confrontation, from bayonet and sword wounds. The newspaper reported one death a few days after the event. However, this was an error, and it's disputed whether or not anyone died during the actual confrontation. In another part of town, merchants were still protesting the Townshend Acts. It was two years since the agreements were put in place, and both English and colonial merchants were still feeling the impact. Local colonists, including Samuel Adams, tried to shame and intimidate merchants into extending the agreements. Some merchants agreed to the extensions, but eight merchants from Boston refused. The Sons of Liberty would post signs in front of stores who were refusing to conform to the extension. These signs were designed to shame the merchant and hopefully keep customers away. Ebenezer Richardson, one of the eight merchants refusing an exception, saw one of these signs and tried to run it over with a horse and carriage. This did not go over well. This angered the boys who posted the sign. They threw rocks at him and chased him to his house. Once Richardson was inside his home, the boys started throwing rocks through his windows and targeting others inside the house. Richardson would peek his head out every once in a while to threaten the growing mob. But every time he did this, the crowd would get angrier. As an attempt to intimidate the ever-increasing mob, Ebenezer Richardson went to a window and filled his musket with gunpowder only. He fired into the crowd. When the group did not leave, he returned to the window for a second shot. This time, his musket was loaded with swan shot, which contained multiple pellets and is typically used for hunting wildfowl. Richardson's second shot would injure Samuel Gore, a teenager who was part of the mob. It would also kill an 11-year-old boy, Christopher Cedar. Cedar's death would enrage the colonists, and there is some debate on whether Cedar's death should be counted as the first casualty of the Revolutionary War. Over a thousand people would attend his funeral and will consider Cedar as a symbol of British tyranny. Private Thomas Walker, a British soldier, was walking through town one day and passed John Gray's Rope Walk, a merchant specializing in ropes. William Green, who was an employee at John Gray's Rope Walk, asked Walker if he wanted a job. British soldiers were paid very little and would work around town as a way to supplement their income. Naturally, Private Walker said yes, and Green replied with, Then go and clean my shithouse. There's a little bit of he said, she said on what happened next. Walker stated the workers at the rope shop beat him up, but Green reported Walker punched him and the other workers jumped in as a defense. Regardless, a fight broke out between Walker and the employees at John Gray's rope walk. Walker returned with around 40 soldiers and threatened the men who jumped him. Local residents saw the commotion and joined the fight. Eventually, the 40 soldiers were outnumbered. The soldiers withdrew, 
but fighting would sporadically go on for the next couple of days. On March 5th, 1770, three days after Private Walker's incident, scuttlebutt started to spread about British soldiers planning to burn down local buildings. Local residents armed themselves, organized mobs, and began to patrol the streets. At around 8 p.m., Captain John Goldfinch was strolling down King Street. Edward Garrick, a wig maker's apprentice, shouted to Goldfinch that he was a ne'er-do-well who had not paid his master for a hair treatment. Insults were a lot different then as opposed to now. Captain Goldfinch ignored this, but Private Hugh White decided to protect his captain's honor. White confronted Garrick, exchanged some words, and hit him on his ear with the butt of his rifle. This attracted a lot of attention, and in a few minutes, more than 50 people surrounded White. He backed up to the customs house, banged on the door to be let in, but none of the customs officials opened the door for fear of retaliation. Captain Thomas Preston was the officer of the day, and caught wind of what was happening to White through reports from local civilians. Captain Preston was hesitant to send his lieutenant and more soldiers to help out White, so he waited a while, hoping the situation would fix itself. After 30 minutes, Captain Preston would lead a team of one corporal and six privates to help Private White. He ordered his squad to fix bayonets, but to leave their weapons unloaded. When Preston arrived, reports say the mob size was in the hundreds. He ordered Private White to join the squad, but the mob surrounded the soldiers and did not let them leave. The soldiers formed a semicircle behind Captain Preston to defend against the mob. The mob continued to throw rocks, snowballs, and taunted the soldiers by daring them to fire. Fearing the crowd, Captain Preston ordered his men to load their muskets. This did not help the situation and infuriated the mob. Someone in the mob hit Private Montgomery with a club and knocked him down. He stood up and fired his weapon. Captain Preston was attacked seconds later and beat with the club as well. The attacker meant to hit Captain Preston in the head, but slipped on ice and ended up hitting him in the shoulder. Witnessing their captain under attack, the soldiers fired into the crowd. When Preston stood up, he was mad about soldiers firing and asked why. The soldiers stated they thought they heard Preston say fire. The entire 29th Regiment was now in formation, carrying arms. Fortunately, the mob decided to disperse and the fighting stopped for the night. When all was said and done, three men died instantly at the event. One died the next morning, one would die nine days later, and eight suffered wounds. Captain Preston and his men were arrested. It's estimated that 10 to 12,000 would attend the funerals of the dead men, and this event would be a significant argument against British rule and one more case for independence. Captain Preston was tried for ordering the men to fire. Fifteen witnesses were questioned and gave conflicting responses. Some heard Preston give the command to fire, some did not, and some thought it came from the crowd. At the end of the trial, Preston was found not guilty and quickly made his way to Castle Island to get away from the mob. Preston would resign his commission and head back to Ireland. A month later, having been in jail the entire time, the soldiers would have a chance to defend themselves. It was tough to ignore the fact that the men were under attack by a mob. At the end of the trial, Private Kilroy's charge was reduced from murder to manslaughter for the death of Samuel Gray. Private Montgomery's charge was lowered as well, from murder to manslaughter, and found guilty of the death of Crispus Attucks. The six other soldiers involved that night were found not guilty of all charges. Solely based on this event, Thomas Hitchinson, who was the British colonial governor at the time of the Boston Massacre, ordered the British Army to evacuate from Boston. The Boston Massacre would cause opposition to rise in both Britain and the colonies. The atmosphere would turn from protest to armed rebellion. As discussed last week, the Indemnity Act did not go over very well with the colonists. 
They reviewed the three pence tax as unconstitutional and to retaliate boycotted any tea coming from Britain. If the colonists found any merchants trying to buy or sell tea, the store would be boycotted, would lose their customers, and possibly have to answer to a mob. The East India Company would take the biggest hit from the boycott. Around this time, the East India Company was going through a few financial difficulties. They overtook Bengal, set up plantations, and paid local merchants and workers a meager wage to maximize profits. However, Bengal experienced a multi-year drought and famine. The majority of Bengal's resources were being shipped back to London. Without access to local resources, many of the locals starved to death. Due to a reduction of work staff in Bengal, drought, and famine, the East India Company could not maintain its revenue stream. In 1772, the nation entered into a recession. Banks stopped lending money, company stock dropped drastically, and tea sales plummeted. The East India Company attempted to take a £1 million loan out for taxes and fees, but no one was willing to lend them the money. The only other option was to cancel the annual dividend payment to the investors. As we discussed last week, many members of parliament owned stock in the East India Company and depended on these dividend payments to support their lifestyle. Parliament reacted by a government takeover of the company, regulated pay to employees, reduced dividend payments from 12% to 6%, and granted a £1.4 million loan to the company. The Tea Act allowed the East India Company to ship directly to the colonies without having to port in London. To achieve this, the East India Company assigned consignees. The job of a consignee was to pay whatever fee and taxes on the shipment and place a down payment on the value of the tea. After the tea was sold, the consignee would pay off the remaining amount and pocket the profits. The Tea Act benefited the East India Company because it drastically lowered costs by requiring fewer employees in England, removing the second ship needed to travel between America and Britain, as well as the cost of the workers necessary to handle the tea. While the East India Company was going through changes, the colonists were paying close attention to the events that were unfolding. One of the most significant red flags was Bengal. The country's resources and people slowly dwindled away due to excessive taxes and regulations. Millions of citizens starved while government officials and East India Company executives got rich. How was America any different? Colonists saw this as a warning of things to come to the colonies. The Tea Act of 1773, passed on May 10th, would launch the final spark to the revolutionary movement in Boston. The sole purpose of this act was to support the East India Company's monopoly on the tea trade. The first wave of ships were made up of seven vessels, with full shipments of tea. Four of the seven ships, the Beaver, Dartmouth, Eleanor, and William, traveled to Boston. The remaining three ships traveled to other colonies. New York would receive the Nancy, Charleston would see the London, and the Polly would sail to Philadelphia. Although the Tea Act was passed on May 10, 1773, it took two months for the news to reach the colonies, and once it did, there was confusion on what the Tea Act actually said. It wasn't until September that local newspapers would print the full text of the Tea Act. Coincidentally, the East India Company would send the first round of ships to the colonies in late September as well. There wasn't any time for the colonists to post a response to England. Carrying 114 chests of tea, the Dartmouth was the first ship to arrive in Boston Harbor on November 28th. Each chest held 360 pounds of tea leaves. The chest weighed about 90 pounds itself. Upon the arrival of the ship, locals commanded the ship turn around and return to London. This wasn't an option. 
it was illegal for the ships to return to Britain without first selling the tea. If the ship did return, the consignees would be responsible for the cost. There was also the dilemma of the duty fees for entering the harbor. The duties on the tea had to be paid within 20 days of docking, or the officials would seize the tea and sell it themselves. The following week, Eleanor and the Beaver arrived with more tea in their cargo. The fourth ship, the William, was caught up in a storm and crashed. The ship never arrived in Boston. The three ships could not leave Boston's port. Customs officials wanted them to pay their duty fee, and the British Navy was threatening to sink them if they left before selling the tea. In protest, dozens of men showed up in Mohawk costumes to remove the 350 chests of tea on board the three ships. 30 to 60 men boarded the ships and began to dump the tea into the harbor. Due to the weight of the chest, it took them over three hours to dump all of the tea. One of the men dressed in a Mohawk costume was caught stuffing tea into his pockets. This did not go over well with the protesters. The crowd saw what he was doing, beat him, undressed him, and forced him to run home naked. The crowd wanted the protest to be apparent. This wasn't an opportunity to loot. This was strictly a political protest. This event gathered support from other colonies. The demonstration was clear. No one on board the ships were attacked. The property wasn't damaged and tea wasn't being stolen by the protesters. This was strictly a political protest. Colonists throughout New England organized tea burnings. Newspapers started to publish articles condemning tea drinking. They compared it to a poisonous herb and credited tea to a flea problem in America. This was a proverbial nail in the coffin. The Boston Tea Party unified the colonies. It was clear America would not accept any tax increase without the involvement of a colonial representative. The backlash from America caught a lot of people off guard in Great Britain. Britain thought they were lenient, but the public opinion started to turn on them. Most British citizens wanted the colonies in America to be taught a lesson. British newspapers criticized Britain's attempt to make the colonies happy as a weakness. British citizens agreed that the colonies needed to be reminded about who was in charge. General of the British Army, General Gage, stated, the colonists acted like lions because the British had behaved like lambs. The British government needed to act on the Boston Tea Party protest and issued a group of laws in 1774 called the Intolerable Acts. On March 31, 1774, the Boston Port Act was passed. The Boston Port Act prohibited any ships from entering Boston Harbor except for food and military supplies for the British military. This ban would stay in place until the East India Company was reimbursed for its cargo. On May 20th, the Massachusetts Government Act was also passed, and it was the most threatening to the colonies. Parliament revoked the Massachusetts Charter and stated that all future councillors would be chosen by Great Britain. This act also gave the governor full power to appoint all judges, attorney generals, sheriffs, and other court officers. It also gave the governor power to remove them at will. On top of all that, this new law placed restrictions on town meetings. This is precisely what the colonists were afraid of. The most fundamental right colonists had was a right to govern themselves. This was no longer an option with the Massachusetts Government Act. On the same day, the Administration of Justice Act was passed, or better known to the colonists as the Murder Act. The purpose of this act was to ensure a fair trial to any British official who was charged with capital offenses while upholding British law. It was dubbed the Murder Act, because it allowed British law enforcement to escape local trials for murder. There was a lot of debate in Britain about passing this act. 
The primary argument was that the colonies did not need it. They provided a very fair trial after the Boston Massacre, and most of the soldiers involved were found not guilty. However, many argued that rejecting this act would be another sign of weakness. The Justice Act would be passed. Parliament would reinstate the Quartering Act for all colonies. Nothing changed here, but Britain would enforce the law moving forward. The Quebec Act, which instituted a permanent administration in Canada and gave French Canadians religious freedom, would also nullify current boundaries and potentially reduce the size of the colonies by extending the boundaries of Quebec. For months, nothing came in or out of Boston, and Boston was under full military occupation. General Gage was not letting up on Boston, and the other colonies were witnessing this. General Gage's strategy was to teach the colonies a lesson through Boston, but that's not what was going on. Colonies were mad, and New Yorkers were meeting to discuss how they will respond to the Boston Port Act. The colonies decided to stand with Boston, and on June 1st, they suspended all port activity for the day. They also agreed on standing up the First Continental Congress. At the end of the day, every colony, except Georgia, agreed to send delegates to the Continental Congress. When the Continental Congress met in September, the tension reached its peak and Congress would permit an economic boycott of Great Britain. Next week, the colonies go to war. Thanks for joining. Next week, we will discuss the Continental Congress and the start of the American Revolutionary War. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each episode, and take a look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.